That's a, that's a picture on the screen of just the, the view from the waterfront. It uh, is stunning. It's, it's quite beautiful. Uh, Angel and I have been going there to pastor spouse retreats. We've, we've done marriage weekends there, family weeks in the summer. Uh, it's an amazing place. Something actually has changed at Barnabas in recent years, though. For, for many, many years, it had no cell service, and they had terrible Wi-Fi. <laughs> so when you went to Barnabas, it was like you were going to another planet. You had no contact with the outside world. And quite honestly, what happened was you didn't have your device, and so you had your family. So <laughs> you actually found it more natural to connect with the, the bodies who were there with you, and also with God. It, it seemed like a place like Barnabas and those like it where we put aside our technology, it's like it opens us up to, to a, a fresh way of relating to God. It's so true. Um, it's interesting. W- restaurants, there are, I was reading about the, that this week, that there are restaurants that are as- actually asking their patrons to put aside their cell phones. In fact, they have little baskets that, at their table that when you come in, you're meant to put your cell phones in the little basket because their observation was these little screens were, were getting in the way of people having conversation together at the meal table. It's become a bit of a, an epidemic in our day, I think, uh, just how interruptive our technologies are. David Fitch, he talks about this in his book, Faithful Presence. He talks about how real conversation, meaningful conversation, rarely happens over mealtimes anymore. He says, uh, he says we, at work, we've got what you might call power lunches. Quick question for you. How many of you actually commonly or often practice working lunches? Anybody? You know, where, where you're actually maybe even sitting at your computer eating your lunch as you're doing more work? Yeah, guilty. I'm, I'm, that's my life a little bit, right? Um, at home, had, we used to have TV dinners. I think we might have smartphone dinners now is what that might look like. But Fitch goes on to say, he says, we are a mass of disconnected souls with too many tasks and too much to do and too much stress to do them. I, I think in our, in our culture today, it would be safe to say that we are generally starving for presence. We're starving for meaningful connection, both with God and with each other. And in light of the day that we're living in, the extraordinary invitation that, that we find in John 15, 4, that great verse in Jesus' Last Supper meal discourse, seems, I think, even more relevant to us today. This is where Jesus says to his followers, abide in me, and I will abide in you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. I I think this, as I've said before, this this invitation kind of speaks to your deepest longings, our our deepest longings for, for friendship with the living God, for actual relationship with God, and, and experiencing his presence. As we said a couple of weeks ago, Jesus said these words in the context of a picture, a metaphor that he gave. He talked about he was the, the, the vine and we're the branches that we're meant to stay connected to the vine. We're grafted into it. And this image is, is meant to help us know and understand that the Christian life is first and foremost defined by this deep connection, this union with Jesus. I was meeting with someone this week, and we we're talking about just how kind of complicated it, is, it seems in some ways to live the Christian life in our day. 
And, and this person came to the conclusion. They said to me, they said, Derwin, I just have to kind of keep on focusing that this is about relationship, that God wants a relationship with me. I got to not forget that because I sometimes lose sight of that. And, and I think that's what Jesus would say here. This, this heart of the Christian faith that we would have learned to abide with Jesus, that's what it's all about. It brings us to this question that we considered last time a couple weeks ago. How do we do this? How do we abide in Jesus as he abides in us? Uh, We talked about Gordon T. Smith's book where he makes the case that there's kind of been three traditional ways of the church doing this uh, over over history, the the evangelical, the sacramental, and the Pentecostal. Um, These ways, each of these are kind of the answer to how we abide as a, as a community. Um, and in our churches, we tend to emphasize or just kind of lock into one of those three when really we need all of them in concert for us to truly abide with Jesus. Last time we looked at the evangelical answer to that question, abiding through the word, this, this staying connected to Jesus through our our hearing the word preached through our reading the word, through our study of the word, meditation on his words. We said how the word is living and active. It's alive. Um, at the Alpha course this week, we uh, got to listen to Nikki Gumbel's testimony. Nikki Gumbel, uh, before, he became a, before he became a pastor, he was a, a lawyer, grew up in a family of lawyers. And when he was a teenager, he described himself as an argumentative atheist. Anyone know an argumentative atheist? Fun, fun times, for sure. And uh, what happens, what rocked his world early in his university life, his best friend Nikki, Nikki Lee, who actually did the, does the marriage course, Nikki and wife Scylla um, became Christians. They'd gone to a Bible study, come to Christ, came back, told Nikki, and so Nikki determines that he's going to argue them out of the faith. And so what Nikki does is he actually grabs hold of a Bible and he begins reading the New Testament. He begins at Matthew and he begins reading all in one sitting till, till he got through about halfway through the Gospel of John in, in one evening. He stopped at three in the morning. Next day, he says he, says he had nothing to do because he was a student. <laughs> I love this. Next day, he just kept on reading and read right to the very end of the New Testament with the hopes of being able to disprove the faith to his friends. And when he concluded at the end of Revelation, he says, this, it's got to be true. That was his conclusion. This has got to be true. He met Jesus, the, the living word, through the word. And so many of you have found that abiding in Jesus through the word has been so life-giving, has been so nourishing for your soul and drawn you into that abiding relationship with God. And so, as I said last time, we'll continue to lean into this, orientating ourselves here at Hillside and together around the word and his words. This morning, we're gonna look at the second stream of of these three streams. We're gonna look at sacramental today. We'll take some time to look at what that approach might mean. It's a word that maybe you haven't heard before but we're gonna consider two sacred practices, uh, two sacraments uh, in our worship, and we'll also consider a sacramental practice that we can adopt in our own lives that will help us stay abiding with Jesus. And then we'll end our service by actually sharing in one of the sacraments, the the Lord's Supper. Um, I'm excited about this, but why don't we just pause for a moment, let's pray once more, 
and invite God's Spirit to speak to us today. Holy Spirit, thank you, Lord, that you, you take the words of Jesus and you make them alive to us. The words of Scripture, uh, Father, speak to us about your relenting pursuit of relationship with us. And so this morning, as you pursue us, as you invite us into this abiding relationship, teach us in, in new ways what that could look like and what that might mean. Open our ears and our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How do we abide in Christ as Christ abides in us? Um, from a sacramental perspective, they'd, they'd make the case that this theme kind of runs all through the Gospel of John. Uh, like evangelicals, they, they would be drawn to those majestic first words in, in John 1, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But from a sacramental perspective, the, the climactic kind of moment comes a little bit later in the first chapter of, of John, verse 14, where it says, and the Word became flesh and, and dwelled among us. Uh, we, we sometimes can forget how the entire course of human history was altered by that one event, that by, by Christmas. And so when we ask how this abiding relationship with Jesus, how that happens, the sacramentalist, someone from that perspective, would, would see a one-to-one -one link between John 1.14 and, and John 15.4. We can do it because of the incarnation, because God came among us. It's through in, the incarnation of the word that heaven and earth are now linked together. We just celebrated Christmas, right? Um, how many of you, I want to just a quick poll, have not yet taken your decorations down? Anybody? Confess? What? Had somebody tell me earlier that, that they actually think that there should be a law that you can't put your decorations up before two weeks, you know, uh, before Christmas, and two weeks after has to go down. If not, you're, you're, being, you're carried away. Off you go to prison. This kind of thing. Um, yeah, I got to confess, we didn't get the, the last of our decorations down until yesterday, so don't know where we're at on that whole scheme. For many of us, I, I think when it comes to our celebrating Christmas, uh, even as Christians, we've kind of picked up kind of sentimental ideas about the Christmas story. I mean, it, we, we get it in our songs, you know, the, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Um, any parent of a newborn disagree with that? That, you know, it's like by virtue of being a newborn, it's like crying they make. It's just by definition. It's been part of our art. I, if you look at any pictures or, or paintings that have been done through history of the nativity, very often Jesus' uh, Jesus's mother, Mary, it looks so prim and proper, like she's just had a manicure or something, right? When, when she's actually just gone through what would be terrible child, child pain. The realistic picture of, of Scripture, I, I think actually we, we can see it in the original story, but we just know that Jesus was born to an actual woman who experienced actual labor pain. And born in the most primitive of environments, I, I'm just betting that there was no antibacterial lotion dispenser on the wall of the stable. That's my hunch anyway. But it was about as real and as gritty and, and human a birth as ever there was. God became flesh. God took on our humanity, and in doing so, he took on our physicality. He took on our 
physical nature. God with skin on, fully human. Our world becomes his home, his tabernacle. He took on our flesh, the Apostle Paul says in in Galatians 4, so that we might become children of God. In a sense, God became one of us so that we we could become one with God. I, I love how Gordon T. Smith puts this. Listen to this. He says, the genius of this event, the incarnation, is that the stuff of creation, the physical, the tangible, becomes the very means by which God unites us with himself in Christ. For the sacramental Christian then, physical and tangible things can be, can be and indeed are a means by which we are drawn into the life of God. He goes on to say, he says, the very matter that God created is a means of grace by which creation is healed. God, God came to actually save not just our souls. He came to save our, our, our world, our, our bodies. And, and Jesus, by his very coming, honors our physical existence, our experiences. He honors, in a sense, our very gritty, real lives. Jesus didn't walk around in a bubble where nothing touched him. We, we know that Jesus was lonely. We know that Jesus suffered pain. Jesus had the full human experience. And what Jesus did by his actual presence is he made his presence available to us. And not only that, he he makes or transforms our everyday spaces where we live into sacred space. Jesus was a sacramentalist, if you want to call it that. God surprisingly does not reject kind of the physical life that we live. He, he rather uses that life in order to draw us to himself and to actually redeem us in those places. Now we catch more of this theme throughout the Gospel of John. You come to John 3 and we read about being born again. We're born anew. It, it says we're born above both of water and, and spirit. And from a sacramental perspective, Jesus' words are clearly referring to water baptism. Water. The wet stuff, the stuff we have showers in every single day, water becomes a means by which we're, we're drawn into the life of God and, and be reborn. Now, now the, of course, the, the waters of baptism aren't kind of special waters in and of themselves, but it becomes powerful as that water is linked with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's water and spirit. So again, To mark our initiation into the the Christian faith, the community of faith, we don't just recite a creed. We don't just say a prayer. We don't just believe an idea about God. Jesus says, get wet, dive in, step into the waters. I want to mark this beginning of a a journey with me, of following me by by getting baptized in or, or by water. Some sprinkle, some dunk. I I don't think we need to get bent out of shape about which. But the point is, is that it's an actual physical event with actual water. Now, why? Again, uh, I get asked this question a lot when we do baptism classes. Why should I get baptized? Why does Jesus make such a big deal of this that he actually commands the church to do it? That he, his expectation that anyone who follows him is going to actually take this as one of the early steps in their journey with him. Are we saved by baptism? No, Scripture says we're clearly 
saved by, by grace. This offer of forgiveness and new life in this life and the next is, is given to us freely by the grace of God only through what Jesus did on the cross. We, we need to respond to it. We, we're called to trust him and receive that. But there's nothing magic kind of about the water itself. But God made us physical beings. He doesn't want us to just live our faith in our heads. And by the way, this is maybe one of the, the, the difficulties. If we end up, if we're kind of more from the, the evangelical tradition, tradition, we might find ourselves leaning into that and, and missing these other aspects of, of how God wants to save not just our bodies, but our, our whole souls. Uh, he, he wants us to have an embodied Christian experience. Um, Paul points to this in 1 Thessalonians 5 where he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And he goes on to say, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, uh, baptism, um, this immersion or this sprinkling or however it has looked like in your experience uh, that was around before Jesus, actually. In the days of the Israelites, uh, they had some form of baptism. And, and that if, if someone, if a Gentile wanted to become a part of the Israelite community, if you wanted to convert to Judaism, one of the ways they, they would mark that conversion was to, to have baptism. They'd go into the waters. And it was a symbol of cleansing. It was a, a symbol of their repentance, but it was also a way of saying, this outsider is now part of the family, the family of God. Christian baptism, which of course is, represents a person's individual commitment to Jesus, it's also a statement of belonging into the, into the people of God, the church. And so you have Paul, in, who says this in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, for we were all baptized one, by one spirit as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Which means, folks, that it's never just you and Jesus. It's never just me and Jesus. It's always we and Jesus. We're the, the body of Christ, which means what we do when we gather, what we do as we connect as a fellowship, is also sacred space. God also meets us as we have greeting times in the middle of our services when somebody actually says, how are you doing? I really care. And, and listens or speaks a word of encouragement or simply gives a hug as we remind each other of God's faithfulness. Those, those are all aspects of what it means to be a sacred community together. We abide together. Back to baptism for one moment just before we move on, have you taken that step? Have, have you been baptized? If uh, it's not just a command from Jesus for his followers, it's actually a way of abiding in Jesus and in his larger family. So let me encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized, I, I don't know what the obstacle is. I'd love to talk about that for you. Like, what's keeping you from taking that step? And uh, let's discern that together. I mean, it, it could be that, that you're waiting till you're more perfect. 
the whole point of baptism is it symbolizes that you're never perfect enough and that Jesus actually went to the cross and died and was resurrected because we're not perfect. So you waiting until you're perfect is not a good reason. But if you'd like to take that step, it's just a great moment when we as a family can celebrate that together and cheer you on in your journey. So, so let's talk if that's uh, something you're interested in. Well, uh, moving on, this, this whole sacramental perspective is even more aggressively presented by Jesus in his words that we find in John chapter 6. This was some of the most controversial and aggressive words Jesus ever used. This, he uses this grass, graphic language to speak of what it means to live as his disciples. He point blank says that a disciple is one who eats the flesh of Jesus and drinks the blood of Jesus. I'm the bread of life, Jesus insists. And the bread that he gives for the life of the world is, as he puts it, my flesh. And then you've got John 6, 56, which clearly links to, to John 15, 4. Jesus says, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me as I in them. There's that abiding language again. Now, now what practice does that foreshadow? The Lord's Supper what we're going to practice in just a little bit. This, this thing that Jesus instituted on the night in that upper room, the night that he was betrayed, he took simple food. He took a bread that would have been, on, been part of every table in that day, and he took wine, which would have been part of every meal in that day. And, and he said, this is my body. It represents my life given for you. And he took the, the blood. This is my, my blood given for you. And, and he wanted that to be a, an endearing symbol and enduring activity that the church would participate to remember his sacrifice on the cross. It's a great demonstration of, of God's love for us. Um, so great. Now, what does the body and the blood point to? Well, as I've said already, it actually points to the most gracious act in human history, God's love for us. And because of that, it's one of the reasons why we at Hillside here try not to divide over this act. Um, some people get really, really kind of crazy about how this is done. And I think that's maybe missing the point. Because the fact that it's done is the important thing. Whether you, you do intinction or you do whatever method, whether they're past, the trays are passed and you're in the pew or not, whether you come up or, or you stay seated, I think that's all missing the point. That's just incidental. I love uh, a few weeks ago, um, I was sitting right there, and there was a little boy, about six or seven years old, and I think this might have been his first Sunday at Hillside. And uh, communion time, we're having communion at the end of the service, and our worship team is up there playing, and, and pretty much everybody had come up and had the, the, the cup and the, the bread. And this little boy, I see him kind of glance at his dad, and then he gets up and he walks up and he grabs a little thing of juice and he goes back to his seat and he drinks the juice. And then uh, about a minute later, he gets up <laughs> and goes back to the table and grabs another thing of juice and goes back. But he, uh, again, this time he's avoiding his dad, like any contact with his dad. He's kind of looking away, just, you know, like this. He sits in his seat. Then he goes to the back and I don't know where he is, but he comes back about three minutes later and, and, and instead of going to his seat, he walks right up the front, and he grabs two more cups this time, and goes back to, to the seat. And I just, I just couldn't help but smile. And I mean, there, there may be those that think, well, you should have policed that, Derwin. You could have stopped that. I could have, but 
I have memories, I had flashbacks of when the tray was passed to me as a child and I would carefully look at all the cups to see which cup had been filled the fullest. And I would then take that cup and somehow I'm still with, the, the, the sky hasn't fallen on me, that the Lord has actually drawn me into life with him in spite of my greedy approach to communion over the years. It took me a long time before communion actually became meaningful. But, but in those early years, I, I, I think, quite honestly, how young should our kids be before they start participating in this? I don't know, as soon as they're able to, to hold a cup and drink, eat the bread, I, I think it's, we're physical beings, and I think one of the, 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 the pleasures of this, if you want to call it ritual, is that it actually gets inside of you, and you, you kind of absorb it before you understand it, right? And so I think there's grace for that boy because there was grace for me, and there's grace for you. I mean, there's people who come here, and they might not understand what they're doing, um, uh, traditionally, the, our, our belief has been this is for Christians who've made that decision. But we would say this, if you love Jesus and you want to love him more, you're welcome at this table and we urge you to come. That's, that's just, in a nutshell, our, our approach here at Hillside. And, and so we don't have communion service kind of hidden away uh, from our public gatherings. Anybody can come. And we hope that it'll be a, a means of meeting Jesus. Um, we sometimes call it communion again. Yeah, communion is a word that, that celebrates unity. Union is, is the, the key word there, and it's a, this celebrates this union that we have with Jesus, but it also has, for that word communion, community, it celebrates that this is the Lord's table that we celebrate together. Again, it's, a, it's an emphasis that, that this community is sacred. That actually as we take the bread and the cup together, it's, it's, it's not something we do by ourselves. We do it together. Sometimes uh, we've had it where, where we'll have individuals up here that bless you as you come for the bread and the cup. I think that's such a great thing. Because to have somebody look at your eyes and say, you're loved by Jesus is such a good thing. And this morning, you're going to be taking it on your own. But I would say if you're, you're with a family member, you could actually do it together. And you could take the cup and the bread and you could say the body and blood of Jesus given for you. It's this communal thing. And in a few minutes, we're going to do this together. It's a means of God's grace and presence to us. We can abide in Jesus through this sacred act of the Lord's Supper together. Um, I want to just wrap up with one practical suggestion and, and kind of a question. What difference would sacramental living actually make in our everyday lives? How does this get fleshed out a little bit in our everyday, right? If God makes your physical life sacred, how can you be more aware and participate in that? And, and there's been lots of practices over the years that can help us in this. I want to just highlight one. This is one that I've come to know and love primarily because a good friend of mine, Jerry Hoyrup, who comes to this church, has practiced this for years. It's called the examine. And it's, some, it's, it's ancient. It's like four or 500 years old. I think the 16th century uh, by St. Ignatius. Uh, he, he was a spiritual director and he used these questions to help people reflect on their lives to think about their, their experiences. In fact, we've got, I believe we have handouts at the back. Have they been handed out already? Do you guys have one in your hands? Can you guys, there uh, should be handouts, reflection exercises back there. Let's get those uh, handed out. I think we forgot to ask to have that done. 
But these are questions you can ask at say, and, and, and a, probably a good time to do it would be at the end of the day or at the end of a week where you're kind of looking at, the, the questions are meant to help you discern kind of where has God been working in my life today? You know, uh, the, the language that Ignatius used was consolation or desolation. Consolation means in, in, in what way was I drawn to God today? And so you might think back on your day and you think, you know what, my commute was pretty good today. I sensed that I wasn't impatient as I traveled. Or it could be that I really enjoyed mealtime with my kids today. Somehow I felt really engaged as a parent and I felt love for my kids. And you're, no, you're, you're looking, you're on the lookout. This helps you be on the lookout for where God is moving in your life that you don't notice. You'd be, be prone to ignore. And then the desolation side of it is a question where you're asking, where was I disconnected from God today? Where, where was I drawn away from God today? What, what was happening there that I kind of chose uh, a path a, against him or away from him? I think that kind of habit helps us cultivate an attentiveness to the God who longs to be present to you. He longs to be present to me. And in, in a sense, this morning as we take the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity for us to come forward and be present to God. Um, I want to just kind of wrap up here. I love the encouragement of Brother Lawrence who wrote an exceptional book called Practicing the Presence of God. And he said this, think often on God by day, by night, in your business and even in your diversions. He is always near you and with you. Leave him not alone. Um, for those of you who want to, to read more on that, I'd encourage you to read that book, Practicing the Presence of God. It's a really short little booklet. You can get it online for free because it was written hundreds of years ago. Copyright is no more. Uh, a book you'd have to pay for is a book called the, the, A Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Warren. And she's written an exceptional award-winning book uh, two years ago, I believe, um, and it's exceptional. She takes everyday practices like losing your keys, uh, making the bed, um, the, all those kind of things, and actually reflects on how she notices God through those everyday kind of practices, those everyday kind of happenings. And so those are kind of some resources for you. So can you hear it? The invitation that Jesus again makes to you every moment of every day, all of your life, in every, in, in, in every space, abide in me, and I will abide in you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. We're going um, to experience one of the sacraments this morning, and uh, it's simply the, blo the blood and, and body of Jesus represented here in, uh, in the bread and the cup. It's Welch's, by the way. It's not wine like at Jesus' table. Somehow it magically got transformed uh, through the ages, at least at our church. But uh, we're gonna encourage you to come forward um, and receive this and experience through it the grace of the Lord in a fresh way and the presence of Jesus to us and for us. Let me read Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 11. 
For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, Worship team, come on up. I forgot to ask you earlier. Make your way forward. And the rest of you, again, this is the gift of God for the people of God. And if you love Jesus and want to love him more, we encourage you to come down uh, the two center aisles and uh, you can grab a piece of bread or a gluten-free option if you like and then exit, uh, and the cup as well, and then exit by the side aisles. Please single file so that people can get past you. But uh, I invite you to now come and receive these gifts of Jesus for us.